Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open me to the Gospel of Mark. If you are in the threes and fours class, you guys are dismissed to your class now. Mark chapter 14 is where we will be. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, um, I do encourage you to grab one. Oh, raise your hand. We've got extras in the back, and church members are walking down the aisles now, and they'll hand you one. Uh, we had a little bit of problem with our slides this morning, so the scriptures are not going to be on the slides unless Zach figures it out in between now and then, which I don't know if it can actually be figured out. So make sure you've got a Bible in hand that you can open or turn on. And we will be in Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, here in just a moment. We need one right up here, Christian. If you are a visitor here with us at St. Rose Community Church, I, let me just say, we are so glad that you are here. And, and we want to welcome you the way that we f- believe that Jesus Christ has welcomed us. Romans 15 tells us to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us for the glory of God. And we turn our attention to the Gospel of Mark, which is a story about Jesus' life here on earth. And one of the themes that we see in it is Jesus, Jesus welcoming people into relationship with himself. People whom the rest of the world refused to welcome. But Jesus intentionally goes to the person whom everyone else has cast out of the city, Jesus over and over and over again extends his compassion to them. And so uh, if you are here this morning and you're a visitor and you feel out of place um, in, in church or out of place here listening to a sermon, uh, you are in exactly the right place because Jesus goes for the people that feel out of place. Mark chapter 14, verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, arrest Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while Jesus, while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves, indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? Wasted. For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, 
And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, us of ways we fall short and comfort us with what we see of Jesus in this text. We pray all these things by your grace and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been journeying through the Gospel of Mark since Easter of 2021, and we have now finished Mark chapter 13 and transitioned to Mark chapter 14. And here marks the beginning of what many call the passion narrative. These are the final steps that are being taken by Jesus to the cross. Plans, as verses 1 through 2 show us, plans are now being made for the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. Pen is being put to paper by the religious elite of Jerusalem. Look at verse 1 again. It's now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. The picture of verses 1 and 2 are that things are intensifying and now the religious elite of the day are not just hating Jesus, they're not just angry about Jesus, they're not just complaining about Jesus, but they are now conspiring to actually put a plan into motion to remove Jesus. Jerusalem was the only city where the Passover could come be properly observed. And so Jews traveled from all over the world to celebrate in Jerusalem by some estimates quadrupling the population or more of the city for the week of Passover. I mean, this meant meant that in the city of Jerusalem, there needed to be a greater presence of Roman soldiers because they were afraid that if an uprising or a riot or an attempt to overthrow Roman occupation would happen in Passover, then they would be severely outnumbered. So you have more Jews than you normally have, and you have more Roman soldiers than you normally have, all there in the city of Jerusalem for the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes find themselves in this predicament. They want Jesus dead. But if they arrest him in a public place, they're afraid that there may be many Jews present, perhaps from Galilee or the surrounding regions, who were healed by Jesus, who believed Jesus is the Messiah, and there will be an uprising to try to stop them. After all, Jesus had been drawing crowds of thousands all over the region. So there may be a sizable group of Jesus fans present in the city, 
during Passover. At the same time, though, it would be a perfect time to frame Jesus as a criminal in the eyes of Rome. All they would have to do is, would be to get Jesus before a Roman governor in a controlled setting and then accuse him as being the instigator of a rebellion against Caesar. Passover would be the perfect time for Romans to make an example out of a rebellious Jew who thinks he's the next king. So they're conspiring. They need to get Jesus alone so they can arrest him in secret, try him in secret, and then promptly deliver him to Roman authorities in a controlled environment. And I just want to pause here and just recognize the wickedness of premeditated murder, right? <laughs> I mean, even our court systems recognize the difference between a fit of rage and acting in an uncontrolled way and committing murder or accidentally murdering. We have degrees of murder, and there is intenser judgments for premeditated murder. That means you're in your right mind, you know what you're doing, you're making a plan, you're executing a plan. These men are conspiring together to commit murder, and these men are supposedly the men of God in the city. They're the ones with long robes who say long prayers. They're the ones who answer religious questions and lead people to worship. They're, they're the ones that the people in the city are supposed to look to to find answers when it comes to the things of God. And I think there's a point being made here that has been made over and over and over again in the Gospel of Mark. And that's this. And this is truth number one. Religious activity does not equal spiritual vitality. Look at this. You got it working, Zach. Praise the Lord. Religious activity does not equal spiritual vitality. These men conspiring to have Jesus unjustly murdered are supposedly the most religious people in the city. Now, Jesus is warned against this. Mark chapter 7, verse 6, if you remember back that far. Jesus said to them, Did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it's written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. And Matthew, he says it this way in Matthew 23, verse 25. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for... For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is a theme throughout the Gospel of Mark, that the things that people value and think are most important turn out to not be the main thing. You can be very religious, but yet you could be spiritually dead. We need to be careful 
as we read this text this morning, not to mistake religious acts as the ultimate sign of spiritual vitality. Outward righteousness can be faked. We can fool others. We can fool ourselves into thinking that we are in a spiritually healthy place by citing all the religious things we do. All the while, there's a far deeper problem. For these men, their whole lives of religious good doing had not changed their hearts, and it would not save their souls. So if you're here this morning, perhaps you come from a different church tradition, or perhaps um, you don't know that much about what the Bible teaches about the way of salvation, if you're here this morning and I were to ask you why God should allow you into his kingdom, what would you say? Your first answer is a list of good, moral, religious things you've done in your life then you have missed the message of Jesus. And you can be in the position of these religious men just as easily. I mean, if you ask them the question, they would give a long list as well. Jesus came precisely because we could not save ourselves or change what was inside by enough things that we're doing on the outside. He came because all of us are better at doing righteous things on the outside than being truly righteous on the inside. He came to fix something in us that we can't fix ourselves. He came to expose how badly humanity needed a Savior. In fact, it was that exposing work that Jesus had done in the temple that motivated these men to kill Jesus. Jesus' actions in the temple, his teaching in the temple, was shedding light onto the darkness and the corruption of the hearts of the people overseeing the temple. So they had a choice. I mean, when Jesus exposes true things about you, you have a choice. When light is shed on the deep things of your heart that you didn't know were there and you didn't want anyone else to know were there, when light is shed, you have a choice. You can hear Jesus' words and you could turn to him as the Savior, or you can silence Jesus. You can you not hang out with the people who will speak truth into your life. You can shut out every ray of light to go on believing that you're in the right. That's exactly what the religious leaders are doing here. Masked in all of their religiosity self-justifying every decision that they made, their option was not to listen to what Jesus actually says, but their option was just to silence anything that came from Jesus by silencing Jesus himself. Do you not feel that temptation in your own heart and soul? Someone confronts something in you, someone exposes something in you that should not be there, your temptation is not to hear what they've said, but to silence that voice. Is it not? I feel it. I feel it in, a, it, it, in just conversations with our pastors. And, and they say, well, you know, Drew, Drew talked to me about something that I did at a member meeting a, a little while ago, something that I had said. And he was like, hey, that probably wasn't the best way to say that. And, and, I, and I didn't respond uh, by shutting him. But on the inside, I went, <laughs> right? <laughs> I went, you're right, man. You're right. <laughs> Go pray about it. We feel that. So they choose what many of us choose, and they choose to silence 
Jesus. He's going to die at the hands of the people that the world says are good. And like a movie, the scene of Mark chapter 14 suddenly shifts. It changes. The wicked uh, scheming of the religious elite, all of a sudden there's a scene change to a much more homely and warm scene. Jesus and his disciples are in Simon the leper's house in Bethany, just two miles outside of Jerusalem. And look what it says in Mark chapter 14, verse 3. While he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table. Now, I just want to pause right here, and I just want us for a moment. I know that's a small sentence. You're like, well, what could we possibly get over that? I just want to pause right here and enjoy the reality of this scene in real human history. According to the testimony of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is the divine Son of God. He has always existed since eternity past. Mark has portrayed Jesus as the only one in all of, all of the universe who has authority over every demonic spirit, every force of nature. I think it's safe to assume that this Simon, who was a leper, is no longer a leper because Jesus is the one that healed him. I mean, just consider the image of Jesus that Mark has just described in, in Mark chapter 13. I mean, Jesus has just said, one day I'm coming back and this is what it's going to look like. Mark 13, 25. We sang words like this earlier, right? Mark 13, 25, it says, the stars will be falling from heaven. The powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. One day, Jesus will split the sky, descend in power, and crush all of his enemies. That's the Jesus of the Gospel of Mark. Now consider the scene before us. This Jesus is reclined at a table in the floor, eating with his disciples and enjoying the hospitality of Simon, the guy that used to be a leper. The guy that the entire world would have shunned an outcast and said, don't even touch him for he is unclean. And here's Jesus kicked back on his floor at his table. The gospel of Mark was written that we might see the glory of Jesus. This is what Mark told us all the way from verse 1, Mark 1, 1. This is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But don't miss these moments along the way where God in human flesh reclines at a table with his friends at the end of the day. There's a personableness to Jesus in the gospel of Mark. There's a personableness to Jesus because there's a personableness to God. I mean, one of the remarkable things about Genesis and the way in which it portrays humans existing before sin came into the world was their apparent nearness and relationship with their creator. Before sin, there was a sense in which God himself walked with his people in Genesis. When Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis, it says in Genesis chapter 3, it says that they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Genesis just seems to throw that sentence in there like that was a normal everyday occurrence. It seemed to be natural. It seemed to be what always was. But because sin had come in the world, Adam and Eve respond to the walking of the Lord in a different way. They hide from the presence of 
of God. They, they flee from his nearness. They feel his separation, a separation that has only been felt by all humanity ever since. But here is God, in Mark chapter 14, now on earth, in the flesh, in the presence of his people, reclining at a table. And as he reclines there, just two days before his death, there's only one person in the room who seems to get the significance of the moment. Now, countless times, Jesus has shared a meal with his disciples. He spent time with his disciples. This has been everyday life for Jesus and his disciples in relationship with them, sharing table fellowship. But, but this is a moment where everyone just seems to be going on about their business, not recognizing how precious this really is. Except for one lady who's not even given a name in the story. Verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of, the Sim of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and she poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why is the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. So there's a young woman around the table who understands the significance of the moment and how there may not be many more moments like this. She understands who it is they were fellowshipping with. She understands what it is that he was going to do very soon she takes a flask of ointment presumably a family heirloom of some sort because of how expensive it is it, it, scholars are confused why she would be in possession of this unless it was something that she would inherited and was sort of being passed down it, that could be sold in case something bad happened almost like an insurance policy you know you have this expensive thing that if it all hits the fan and there's a famine then you go sell that thing so you can make it the disciples suppose that it's worth 300 denarii which would have been a whole year's worth of wages so to translate that into our time, into our country, this is something so rare, so costly, she could put that thing on eBay for forty dollars or $50,000. When she takes the flask, she doesn't just pour a little bit out and just so that they might enjoy the aroma, the very rare aroma. No, she breaks it and she pours it all out, anointing Jesus with all that she had. Now, the text doesn't tell us what she said in this moment. It doesn't tell us what she was like or how she approached Jesus. I guess in my own imagination, I imagine tears being shed. I imagine this being a pretty massive moment for the woman as she's sort of giving the most expensive thing that she owns. It doesn't tell us whether she was crying or whether she was holding it together, but the act itself tells us that what she's doing here is worshiping Jesus. She's trying to convey how valuable she believes that he is. She seems to know how valuable he is, and she seems to understand that he's going to give his life for her. I mean, he's been teaching it over and over in the Gospel of Mark. I mean, we've seen this in repetition. I'm going to die in Jerusalem. They're, they've been in Jerusalem. The, the chief priests and the scribes, they're rallying against him. There, there's a sense in what she must feel that what he's been saying is coming to light. 
And in that society, criminals' bodies, I'm sorry, not criminals' bodies, but family members' bodies before burial would often be anointed in sweet-smelling aromas so that the smell of decomposition when they're laid into the tombs would not keep family members away from visiting. This would allow family members to visit the tomb without the stench of death being so bad. Criminals' bodies, however, were not prepared in this way. They were often just thrown into pits with other criminals. And Jesus is going to die a criminal's death with no guarantee of such preparation. And Jesus seems to acknowledge that she's doing this in preparation for the death that Jesus said is coming. Look at verse 8. She's done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. It's a moment of relational, sacrificial faith worship. And, and before we talk about how, the, how badly the other disciples in the room missed this, I, I want to just focus on, on how Jesus commends it. I mean, the disciples rebuke her, but listen to how Jesus describes what she's just done. Verse 6, Jesus says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? And then he says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. Verse 9, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This is truth number two if you're a note taker. Jesus values your worship. He values your worship. Every ounce of notoriety or productivity is stripped away from this moment. This, this woman is not even given a name in the Gospel of Mark. And this woman interrupts the table fellowship with this worship that's deemed inappropriate by everyone else in the room. And I want to pause here just to take note specifically that she's an unnamed woman here who is the example. Now this has been consistent throughout the gospel of Mark. Jesus is in no way, he's not afraid of being countercultural. He is not afraid of being countercultural. He's not afraid of being countercultural when it comes to his views on men and women. In a society that would have been very much patriarchal, in a, so a society that would have put much more value on the testimony of a man than the testimony of a woman or the ministry of a man instead of a testimony of a woman, Jesus actually runs against the grain of the culture over and over and over again. He's not afraid to be countercultural. Jesus and Christianity, as we understand it, have been accused, and we, I was having some conversations this week, from the outside world have been accused of being a patriarchal religion because of the way in which the Bible maintains distinction between men and women in the church or in the home. And it's true, Jesus does consistently maintain a distinction between men and women in the church. He does seem to intentionally appoint these babbling goobers, right, the disciples, these men, to be the leaders and apostles and the preachers of the brand new church. He, he chose, did that on purpose for some reason. But that in no way means that Jesus was just conforming to cultural norms about hierarchical structures and men in leadership. Nor does it mean that Jesus was somehow valuing them more than women. In fact, women are the examples to follow in the Gospel of Mark over and over and over again. They get it right more than the disciples get it right <laughs> in the story. 
The Jesus of the gospel was absolutely willing to break cultural norms. I mean, he flipped tables in the temple. He wasn't afraid to do things contrary, but he chooses both to maintain a distinction between male and female roles, and he chooses to celebrate over and over and over the value of a woman's ministry and testimony in the kingdom of God. Just think about the stories thus far. The woman with the constant hemorrhage of blood becomes the model of faith when she reaches and touches out Jesus' garment in Mark chapter 5. Meanwhile, Jairus, the president of the synagogue in that area, he doesn't believe Jesus and, and is, is wrestling to follow Jesus, but she's the one who acts in faith. The Syrophoenician woman is the model of faith for all the outsiders when she pleads for her daughter's healing in Mark 7 and says even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table. The poor widow in the temple, surrounded by all the egos and all the people bringing their offerings before the Lord. It's the poor widow in the temple that Jesus calls everybody aside and says, look, look at her. She gave two pennies and it was more than every other fool in this room. That's the example you should be following. Mark chapter 12, 42. And now this unnamed woman from the house of Simon the leper becomes the example of what true worship that Jesus celebrates is. And man, there are so many implications of, of this pattern in Scripture. But I just want to say to you, I wonder if you in this room, male or female, I wonder if you feel like you have anything to offer the Lord at all of any value. Certainly women in particular in this time in history might have felt that what they had to bring was not worthy of bringing before the Lord. And if that's you, let me pause right here and speak directly to you from what the gospel of Mark shows us clear, clearly. Jesus came for you. And he values you more than you can imagine. And he's not impressed with giftedness or big platforms or money or status, or outward righteous deeds. Jesus came for the humble and the lowly and the outcast and the downtrodden and the broken and the sick and the sinner. And he came for those whom society rules out as not valuable. And he came for those who, who would humble themselves before the Lord. His values are different than the world's. And I wonder if you value what Jesus values most when it comes to the Christian life. I wonder if you honor the same types of ministry that Jesus honors most in the Christian life. Jesus says in verse 8, she has done what she could. She's brought her very best. She's made her best effort to express what Jesus means to her. She's done what she could to show by her actions that Jesus is the most supremely valuable being in all the universe. This is what worship is. This is what Jesus calls us to. He wants you to recognize and enjoy how beautiful, glorious, and gracious he is in fellowship with him. To fellowship with him, in acknowledgement of how great he is, is worship. She did what she could, and Jesus says, this is beautiful. He says, this will be remembered on into eternity and in every nation on earth where the gospel is proclaimed. I, I just had a conversation uh, this past week with somebody else in the room. You remember and this person was saying, I, I just thought that I'd be doing these great things for the Lord, and, and I, just, I just feel like I'm, I'm not doing anything. And, 
And then I just took a moment and, and talked through the, the ways in which she's ministering right now. And, and I was like, actually, according to the Gospel of Mark, Jesus values those things more than any of the plans of grandeur that you wish you had for yourself. The way in which you're caring for this situation and that per- person. Jesus values your worship, things being done in, in, in an attempt to, to tell the world he's most glorious. Do you, do you believe this morning, and I, and I feel myself failing in this, do you believe that God is not impersonal? He's not distant and unconcerned with fellowshipping with you. What he desires from you most is your affection, love, and adoration. He, Jesus explicitly states, this is the most important commandment. Love God. With all your heart and soul and mind and strength, this is true Christianity. Jesus values your love more than your possessions, position, or any desire that you have And we so easily miss this. Our sinfulness is such that we actually miss what Jesus values values most, even in our attempts to accomplish things for Jesus. Now, I want you to see that in the text. The other disciples in the room there in Bethany are missing the moment altogether because they want to do a good thing. Mark chapter 14, 4. There are some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and and given to the poor, and they scolded her. This is our last truth, truth number three. We often fail to value what Jesus values most. I mean, natural wisdom says that to pour out $50,000 on Jesus' head for him to smell a little better was foolish. I mean, Jesus told us to care for the poor. You went and you wasted your largest potential source of income rather than giving it to the poor. The other disciples in the room are thinking numbers. They're thinking accomplishment. They're thinking mission. They're thinking, Jesus told us to do stuff. And here you are wasting the stuff that we could have done stuff with. They're thinking accomplishments and accolades. They're thinking ministry progress and kingdom building. They're thinking about intrinsically good things that Jesus had told them to care about, but ministry for Jesus at the expense of intimacy with Jesus is not about Jesus at all. Jesus values your worship more than he values your productivity for his namesake. Let me say that again in case you don't feel this. Jesus values your worship more than he values your productivity for his namesake. He wants your affections more than he wants your abilities. In fact, he doesn't need your abilities at all. He's not short on abilities. He doesn't need your platform, your positions, your giftings, your progress, to accomplish anything in the world that God wants to accomplish. He can save anyone, anytime, totally independent of your efforts. He can write the Gospel of Romans in the sky and bring perfect understanding to every tribe on the planet if he so pleases, and you could just be a bystander. But most importantly, he wants your heart. He wants relationship with you so deep that it's your relationship with him that becomes the sole motivation for any ministry that you do. 
Because what humans do is they take good things and they twist them and make them ultimate things. They take religious things, good things, and they make them their God and they miss God altogether. Jesus does not need you to spread the kingdom. What he wants is for you to join him in the work, not so you can do the work for him and report back to them at the end of the day, hoping to have a good report. The disciples are missing the beauty of the moment so severely, they actually scold this woman. <laughs> they actually say, you're being an idiot. I mean, they, they get after her, and Jesus, and I, don't, I, I wish I could hear the tones in reading the Bible, but I essentially read this as shut up from Jesus. I don't know, maybe that's wrong, that's Brandon interpretation, not inspiration, but that, that verse 6, leave her alone, period, feels strong. Feels like a don't mess with my daughter. Don't mess with a worshiper of mine. There, there's, a, there's a coming to the defense of here. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing. You always have the poor with you. And wherever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. He lays down the gauntlet and he gives an order of priority. It's not that giving to the poor is bad. We're supposed to do it. It's rather that worship of Jesus needs to take first priority over any ministry we think we're supposed to be doing. It's only through worship and intimacy with the Lord that we're able to display, display his glory in our ministry. In Acts chapter 4, when Peter stands up and he gives that big speech to Caiaphas and he, he proclaims the gospel, the thing that they recognize about him is the thing that all of us should want people to recognize about us. Acts chapter 4, verse 13, they saw the boldness of Peter and John. They perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished, and this is what they recognized. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. They didn't say, these guys are great preachers and were amazed at their wisdom and brilliance and eloquence. Wish we could be like them. They said, these guys have obviously spent time with Jesus. And I must admit, I, I as your pastor, I, I, as one of your pastors, I'm in a season of life where I think I have failed at this more than I ever have as I was preparing for this sermon. I mean, when we started St. Rose Community Church, I was young, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, ready to conquer the world in the name of Christ, 24 years old, and I spent a lot of time on my knees in prayer in those early days. I mean, a lot of time fasting and praying in the presence of the Lord. A lot of time responding to the word and personal devotion where I had to have journals full of my prayers of response to the scriptures that I'm reading. Not just, not just outlines for the next sermon that I'm preaching, but, but ways in which I'm hoping God does mighty works in me so that I could, I could represent him well, and you fast forward seven years and a pandemic and a hurricane and two kids and some hard knocks along the way, and without even realizing it, I, right now in my ministry, look a lot more like the disciples in the room, a lot more like them than the young lady in the room, sitting at the feet of Jesus, adoring him, and just hoping to communicate how valuable he is. 
I feel more than ever right now in my life that I am guilty of trading intimacy with the Lord with the grind of getting more ministry done. And this text tells me that that's not what Jesus values most. It's one of the things uh, I hope to, uh, if you don't know, I'm taking a little sabbatical for a couple months in the fall. That's the main thing I want to focus on. I need to get back into valuing most what Jesus values. I don't care if I preach a thousand sermons in a year. If I've not sat at his feet, then what have I been doing? So what about you? Are you in touch this morning with the personableness of God? Do you, do you have a relationship with him to where when you talk to him in prayer, it's like talking with a good friend that you're in communication with often? Or is it awkward and bumpy and rigid because of how badly you want to get done with this and get being productive for the day? Do you listen to his voice in the scriptures or do you just try to find scriptures that will help you do the thing that you wanted to do? Do you sit in quiet places and worship your creator in the salvation that he's offered you? Do you value what he values? Or do you find yourself a lot more like the group of disciples in the room. May we follow what I think is Jesus' intent, what I think Mark's intent. Let's follow after the example of this unnamed woman who sees the preciousness of Jesus and worshiping him as the most ultimate thing. Let's pray in response. Father, we thank you so much for this scripture. Thank you so much for the work of the Spirit that helps us to see the scripture for what it says and see our hearts. And we pray that you would just help us to worship you for a moment. To confess the ways we failed, but and when, when we recognize our failures, God, that, that, that should spur us on to look at the cross where all our failures were paid for. And where the gospel says there is total forgiveness. And where Christ welcomes us into his arms. He's not like other friends that give us the silent treatment. Or he's not like friends that will be angry at us for not calling or not spending time. Jesus welcomes us into his arms. Though we have forsaken him. Forgotten about him. So, Father, help us to believe that now and help us just to enjoy the promise of the gospel that, that we come in faith and Christ welcomes us as sinners covered by his payment for our sins. And Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.